I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're examining the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on China's economic power. As the first country to experience an outbreak of COVID-19, China suffered significant economic losses in early 2020. China's GDP contracted by 6.8% in the first quarter of 2020, marking the first time the country has reported negative GDP growth in decades. To facilitate an economic recovery, Beijing took several steps, including delivering fiscal stimulus packages, extending credit to small and medium-sized enterprises, and reducing taxes. These measures, along with others, ultimately allowed China to achieve 2.3% growth in 2020, according to official figures, while other major economies experienced negative GDP growth. Well into 2021, China's economy appears to be continuing its rebound from the pandemic. Abroad, the pandemic has presented China with both challenges and opportunities to advance its economic influence. The pandemic has exposed major weaknesses in global supply chains and led many in the United States and other advanced countries to call for an acceleration of decoupling from China. At the same time, the pandemic has afforded China opportunities to increase its economic and political influence by providing aid, especially to developing countries. To discuss how China's economic power has fared during the pandemic, I am joined by Daniel Rosen, founding partner of Rhodium Group. Dan leads the firm's work on China and is a widely recognized expert on the Chinese economy. Prior to Rhodium Group, Dan was Senior Advisor for International Economic Policy at the White House National Economic Council and National Security Council. Dan, thanks for joining us today. It's so good to be with you, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. So today we'd like to talk a bit about COVID-19 and how that's impacted China's economic power. So to start off, could you tell us a bit about what variables you look at when you're trying to assess the state of China's macroeconomy? What indicators do you look at when trying to measure China's foreign economic power? There's a whole lot of things that we look at to try to take stock of what's happening. Let's start with the domestic side of China's economy uh, and its performance. We pay a lot of attention to credit, bank credit and non-bank sources of finance for the commercial sector, how companies roll over their debt obligations. Um, we've done several studies with CSIS over the years, in fact, that have honed in on the, um, on the banking system and the credit system. We also look at industrial output quite closely. If you count the number of new automobiles produced, kilowatts of electricity, computers, you know, jars of soup. These things, uh, industrial output, um, are an important sort of real dimension uh, of evaluating how things are going. We also look at the spending side, the expenditure accounts that are kept. Retail sales uh, would be an important uh, one of those. There are both official and unofficial surveys of spending that economists watch. And then the other side of the uh, sheet is income. We look at income by households, income by companies as a way of trying to gauge how things um, are going. And then finally, we have raw material outputs, oil, throughput, and things like that, energy. On the external side, we look closely at trade. Trade has the advantage of having a Chinese set of accounts and also a partner country set of accounts. And so you get a way to double check things, which is always important. 
Likewise, foreign direct investment flows are an important indicator of business activity uh, into China and also out of China nowadays. And then finally, um, official development assistance and lending by Chinese both state and, and private entities outside the country around the world. Of course, Belt and Road, one watches those flows closely to see sort of what China's geoeconomic footprint is looking like. One thing we don't really look at yet, but which might be the big indicator of the future, is portfolio investment flows. That is stocks and bonds investments, both by global citizens into China and by Chinese citizens out. I say we don't look at it much yet because there's not that much happening yet, actually. That's sort of tomorrow's story. But all of us are watching with bated breath to see if China starts to become more normal as a portfolio investor. Thank you very much, Dan, for such a comprehensive discussion of the variables that make up China's economic power. How would you summarize how China's economy was initially impacted by COVID-19? Did you see any significant drops or changes in some of the factors you just mentioned? Uh, well, instantly, of course. Uh, and China was the first nation to suffer from the COVID outbreak. Um, no question about that. And so from January and very much into February, March and April, partly into May 2020, we saw a sort of cardiac arrest um, of a lot of activity as Beijing locked the country down to arrest the spread of the virus. And so almost instantly, catering and restaurant activity, any sort of consumer activity which required folks to gather together in places, we saw that go to nearly zero. Uh, of course, in Wuhan to begin, and then in other places that were fully locked down as well, um, as Beijing took that strategy to try to get past the greatest risk of the virus. So that is the sort of expenditure side, the, the retail sales and sort of spending associated with that. We saw income flows, paychecks to informal workers who don't have an automatic paycheck coming to them from, say, a state-owned enterprise. But anybody who's getting paid you know, by the day in cash uh, or that sort of less formal work wasn't getting paid at all because they, they weren't able to go to their job site. And there's various surveys conducted by Chinese academics and others to try to gauge those income flows. And then, of course, quickly we saw that spread to trade activity as well as Chinese ports started to close down temporarily, as it turns, uh, as it turns out. So we saw, yeah, we started to see um, activity change really dramatically very quickly. There's all sorts of more exotic ways that that was observed as well. There's nowadays... Satellite photography has uh, joined the party, um, and there's all sorts of commercial applications that made clear that construction sites weren't lighting up at night. There was not a third shift, and there probably wasn't even a first or a second shift. Likewise, we saw that cars weren't filling the parking lots of you know, big Walmart superstores and their Chinese equivalents either. So yeah, we could see it hit very hard for the first quarter. Into the second quarter, we started to see that evolve as China felt as though it had gotten things under control and then started to selectively allow activity to, to come back. Let's now focus on how China responded to the pandemic. Could you discuss what you saw as the primary measures that the Chinese government took to shore up its economy? You had mentioned some of the differences between how China's economy performed in the first quarter of 2020 versus the second quarter of 2020. Were the effects of China's economic measures already significant by the second quarter of 2020, or were there other factors driving China's fast recovery? In the first quarter of COVID outbreak in China, 
activity in, in many areas, uh, as I said, went to nearly zero, right? So in the second quarter, things were still deep in negative territory, but we start started by the end of that second quarter to see some gradual reopening um, of various kinds of activity. Of course, people were being given allotted times that they were allowed to leave their building to go do their shopping and these kinds of things. And so some of the most dire reduction in the numbers that we could observe started to loosen up a bit in quarter two. Although lending activity, credit, new credit to businesses didn't get sort of really bad until the second quarter, I would say. Um, and so it was very much a mixed bag since then. Uh, after that first quarter where there was just this most extraordinary uh, downward spike in activity across the board since then, we've had a very imbalanced picture. And, you know, when we talk about what China did to try to make its way out of the hole, we'll very much uh, be talking about the imbalance and how the government responded and how that showed up in the, in the economic data that we're still seeing today. Uh, in terms of sort of the imbalance that you're talking about, could you describe some of the specific measures or like the larger measures that you saw China take? And if there's any way uh, from, from your end to sort of gauge, what were the most important measures that you saw China take economically? And did those measures start having an effect in 2020 or are we still seeing some of the results play out now? Well, both. They, they did start showing up in 2020 and we're still seeing the imbalanced nature of the Chinese response play itself out in 2021. But let me preface my my answer to that, though, with a, a broad observation that will be true throughout the conversation, and that is that there are a lot of disruptions, dislocations, adjustments, problems in the Chinese macroeconomy and microeconomically all over the country that predate COVID and are problematic, have made it hard to interpret what's really happening in the system. Some uh, areas of data have been made less readily available in recent years by authorities than they were in previous years. And so it's generally pretty tough to disentangle the sort of COVID-specific aspects of what's happening in the Chinese economy from the non-COVID problems that are deep-seated and have been building up for a long time. And obviously the property sector problems that we're, we're, we're dealing with most acutely right now are not a COVID phenomenon. And yet, in part, they are made worse by COVID. And let me answer your question now by, by addressing that. The most distinctive characteristic of China's economic response to COVID, its stimulus response, let's call it, was that it was a supply side stimulus. And I say that in contrast to the United States, the European Union, most other um, advanced economies concentrated their response on maintaining household income. So uh, here in the U.S., everybody got, well, everybody who needed it got a $600 a week income support check through the acute phase of the crisis, right, so that they would be able to support themselves. Um, businesses also did get these PPP loans, these loans uh, designed to keep businesses in operation. But remember, those were predicated precisely on businesses maintaining their employment levels. So a small business like mine, Rhodium's and company, had the opportunity to get this big government loan that was going to be forgiven 
we ended up not taking it at Rhodium because we did okay and didn't feel like we needed it. But if we had, we would have been able to keep it provided that we didn't lay off a single person and maintained our employment levels. And so we would say that that was a demand side response here in, this, in the U.S. and that was typical of Europe as well, making sure people still had money to buy the things they needed. China did not support household income at all, really. Um, almost all the support was just for business to keep business going. And the reason for that was that there's so much debt built up in the commercial sector in China that if businesses weren't able to roll over their loans, right, and keep paying their liabilities, you would quickly run into a banking crisis, for the system, for the country, and other kinds of insolvency problems that those are the things that really keep leaders in Beijing up at night. So their concern was not first and foremost with the households, it was avoiding a financial crisis that would have arisen from companies not being able to pay off their debt, their bad debt, their good debt, all their debt. So by the second quarter of the COVID emergency, essentially all banks were told to do whatever was required to not call loans on companies that had borrowed from them. So there was sort of a general amnesty against foreclosures, bankruptcies on firms. That did keep companies from going bankrupt, from defaulting on their bonds and their debts. But it meant that if that was a, a debt bubble that had been growing since long, long before COVID, it was just going to grow for another 18 months or another 12 months. And indeed it has. The property sector debt and other corporate commercial debt that was building up just kept getting worse. Government plans to delever that and make that problem smaller were delayed as part of the Chinese response to COVID. And now we find ourselves in the second half of 2021 in an even worse debt bubble situation that's no longer delayable. I think. And Evergrande, what we're seeing in the property sector is, is sort of the, the result of that. And furthermore, China has not sort of passed the baton from the corporate sector taking on more loans to the household sector and household consumption. So China did not have a consumption-driven economy before COVID, and it doesn't have a consumption-oriented economy now. Retail sales are very weak still, now 18 months into this pandemic. China can claim to have avoided the depths of COVID illness and hospital emergency that the United States, Italy, and other countries have, but it is still got a household sector that is not able to be the driver of the economy going forward. Two quick follow-up questions. You mentioned that the debt situation is worse in China now than prior to COVID. Would you say that this same trend applies to the other components of China's economic power? Or is this only applicable to debt? The second question is related to your discussion of how much of China's strategy was about keeping businesses afloat. You had mentioned that many Chinese businesses stopped paying employees in January and February 2020. When did you see companies start paying their employees again? I would imagine this would be a concern for the Chinese leadership, given the potential that large-scale unemployment may lead to protests and social instability. Well, for starters, debt levels. Debt certainly is not the only problem China has in its economy, but this sort of imbalance between counting on companies to keep investing as a way of creating domestic demand 
versus expecting households to start consuming more as a way of driving demand. That problem has just gotten worse. And businesses spend, invest, uh, when they think there's gonna be more demand in the future. And households consume when they're confident there's gonna be more income in the future. And the rising sea is gonna lift their boat along with everybody else's boat. On both those fronts, a combination of concerns about whether COVID you know, would ever really be something that was done and in the past, right? China hoped that by locking things down so stringently, they would be able to get past the risk of additional COVID outbreaks. We know even today, 18 months later, there have been major continued outbreaks uh, coming both sort of maybe from the outside world that have arisen out of Nanjing Airport, for example, but also coming from the countryside of Fujian very different. So Beijing still hasn't found a way to really make itself safe and protected from COVID. And predominantly China's vaccines have been used to get the inoculation rate, the vaccination rate up very high inside China, which is great. But the efficacy, the effectiveness of those vaccines is well short of what we're accustomed to in the U.S. with Moderna and Pfizer having 95% or so effectiveness for otherwise healthy people. So businesses still aren't in the clear to be confident about investing and building more capacity. They also, and this is a non-COVID factor perhaps, the one engine of China's economy that's been most important even in 2021 has not been domestic demand, but exports. <laughs> China is the only thing going really great for China right now is its export levels are still through the roof. But if you're a business, that leaves you with more and more things to worry about because China global trade relations are not great right now. Uh, certainly uh, post uh, Donald Trump, uh, the Biden era in the United States has not brought about an end to expectations of trade tensions being at an elevated level. So, and Europe as well, um, and Japan certainly, all have great concern about their dependence on China for so many products. So. Businesses still have a, a dark shadow over their investment intentions. And households, I think, are probably better off urban households are probably more concerned about whether they're going to be a winner or a loser from this common prosperity focus on redistribution of wealth than ever before. The more successful you were in China, and hence the more you could consume, the more worried you are presently that China is going to make up for lower growth by redistributing more of your wealth to your not as well off brothers and sisters and cousins around the country. So that's dragging on household consumption. So it's not just the debt levels, but this general sentiment around the outlook. You know, what, what is going to underpin more glory days, if you will, for Chinese economic growth? There's a lot of questions and the policy responses, while some of them are quite bold, are hard to square with what we know about healthy market economy growth from experience elsewhere in the world. Employment, you asked about when we started to see paychecks flowing again. I think for most businesses that had formal employment, they did continue to keep their employees on the payroll. Chinese households do have some savings that they could use to maintain their, their basic necessities levels. And we saw, you know, by quarter three of the pandemic in China, a pretty clear, gradual, but steady recovery in 
basic uh, consumption activity that reflected the fact that people were able to go back to work in the cities. People in the countryside were able to farm, of course, throughout this and people still needed food. So, you know, it's not so much that employment was batted down permanently and didn't get back to sort of the status quo. The question for employment is employment growth at the margin. Are new businesses investing in creating new jobs? Some of the most exciting sectors of the country for new job creation, fast delivery of online retail, ride sharing, for profit education. These engines of employment growth are exactly what the leadership is trimming the wings of, shall we say, out of concern about the social consequences of those industries and in some cases concern about foreign participation as investors in those businesses. So we do have a pretty good um, employment activity recovery, but even more questions than ever about uh, additional employment creation, job creation at the margin. Dan, you had talked about China's agenda for common prosperity. Do you see this effort as part of China's economic agenda to help the country recover from COVID? Are there any positive economic benefits from this agenda? Or is common prosperity more of a political agenda for the Chinese leadership? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, uh, For starters, I don't think we should think of it as a COVID-related policy response at all. It's much more structural and fundamental than that. And number one, number two, it is, I think, similar in some ways to a global focus on distribution and economic growth. And it, to some extent, is entirely appropriate to look at just how concentrated wealth was becoming in China, as in other parts of the world economy. So it is a political campaign, no question about it. Redistribution is not something you do because it increases near-term growth. It's something you do in the hopes that it creates a sense of a fairer society and makes everybody feel good about the model for the long term. There's two questions, though. Number one, the manner in which common prosperity is being framed and implemented, is it really going to address the greatest sources of inequality in the country? I think it's terrific to encourage the wealthy to make greater charitable contributions. It's even entirely appropriate to make sure that there are tax rates that are consistent with the people benefiting the most contributing their share. But charitable contributions are no substitute for the right kind of fiscal policy to manage a nation of 1.4 billion people. And the greatest source of inequality is that the eight or 900 million people who are not living in China's advanced cities are getting really low quality health and educational services. And it's not because of for-profit education. It's not because of Jack Ma or a handful of tech entrepreneurs. It's because China's fiscal reforms that Xi Jinping announced and uh, his finance minister at the time, Lo Jiwei, in 2013, declared that they were going to make a priority. Those reforms were delayed and delayed and delayed over the past decade. And the necessary fiscal reform uh, that China requires in order to lay the foundations of an equitable 
society where everybody has the kind of basic services they need, that project is 10 years behind schedule. And it hasn't really even started for all practical purposes. You can't blame that on, uh, on Jack Ma. I think you really cannot. And so com common prosper prosperity, this is the right idea. Uh, and it should play a part in the political conversation that China's having. But it's no silver bullet for solving the very structural, very deep-seated problems that have arisen from delay in basic policymaking. Fiscal policy is not a capitalist tool. It's not a communist tool. It's something that every nation, no matter what flavor of economic system they want to have, needs to do to make sure that basic public goods are provided for, public goods that will assure healthy and prosperous and common growth for the decades to come. And China's just not where it needs to be on that spectrum. Would you describe China's common prosperity agenda as mainly benefiting China's urban wealthier population versus the larger and poor rural population? I don't know that I would put it that way. I just think it's too soon to tell, right? Um, as often the case with big new campaigns that come down from the leadership uh, in Beijing, they start with broad ideas and goals and aspirations. And then the implementing regulations and the details are only rolled out, only developed over time. And at this point, I personally don't have a clear sense of whether common prosperity is truly going to level the urban-rural divide, which is the one that most concerns me when I think about long, China's long-term development potential. Scott Rosell's work, of course, Invisible China has sort of set the bar for good, right-minded development economics from the international community anyway, as it tells us what we need to know about common prosperity in China. Thank you, Dan. In terms of China's longer trajectory, What's your sense of where China's economy is currently heading? Earlier this year, you and your team at Rhodium Group laid out several scenarios for China's economic growth in 2021. Now that we are further in the year, do you have a sense of where China's economy is? And do you still stand by your previous projections? So our projection, well, the, the numbers we do at the beginning of every year, I think of them less as uh, projections as stylized scenarios is what we call them. And that's a fancy sounding term. But what it means is that we sort of watch the policy package and how the central government uh, seeks to shape and stimulate the economy. And what we said this year was that if China had success in controlling the virus, the spread of the virus, and managed to get the households and household consumption to come to the fore in driving economic growth. And they started pulling back on over-reliance on property sector growth as a way of uh, driving activity. And they uh, diversified away from expecting strong export growth to be the main engine. If they did all those things, then we would see growth soften by the uh, second half of 2021, and they would put themselves in a more resilient position for the years ahead for 2022, three, four, five, right? We haven't really seen that package, I would say. Um, we saw debt levels and the reliance on the property sector as an engine of growth continue to uh, play too big a role. We see 
focus on net exports, um, keeping the export flows at an elevated level, um, still playing too big a role, which means that China is vulnerable to aggressive trade policies from abroad, whatever you think about the legitimacy of those abroad policies, that there is a vulnerability for China there. And we see continued sort of delay on these basic reforms necessary, like fiscal policy, as I mentioned, and I think a little bit too much emphasis on these political campaigns. So in the short term, you know, China will manage to deliver its promised 7 or 8 percent uh, reported GDP growth for 2021. But looking ahead, we don't see the foundations in place to keep growth at what it could be, which, you know, nowadays that's probably like 5% a year would be a pretty good turnout for China uh, in the next three years. I'm concerned that the necessary foundations of that uh, are not being put in place. Final thought on this, while the full year 2021 growth number can and will be reported at something like seven, seven and a half, eight percent. That's on a year on year basis coming off of 2020, which was a disaster, right? So it doesn't mean what eight percent would mean in a normal year. It means that after really having the roughest year in four decades last year, economically. China is putting in a strong, relatively strong performance annually this year. But already in the third quarter of 2021, quarter on quarter growth is only perhaps one, one and a half percent. So that is already much lower than anything you would call a bullish performance. And as I said, it's over dependent on the kindness of others uh, in the form of exporting. Uh, rather than building sources of indigenous demand. I want to segue to another relatively large question. The pandemic has accelerated calls for decoupling with China. How significant do you think the pandemic has impacted calls for such decoupling or reshoring? And how do you foresee these developments unfolding in the future? What impacts might this have for China's economy? Well, most people didn't like the word decoupling before the pandemic. And most people still don't like it now, of course, right? It's the connotation is that it's kind of geopolitical statecraft by by Washington and maybe others. I prefer to think of it as sort of how much engagement is going to be possible if China doesn't truly want to have a market economic system, right? It's every country's sovereign right to decide how market-oriented they want to be. A lot of challenges interpreting exactly what Communist Party leadership is driving at right now. But it seems pretty clear that it's not the kind of market orientation uh, that we celebrate in the advanced market democracies. And it doesn't seem like it's the same meaning of making the market decisive that President Xi spoke about himself even a few years ago, right? So if China, by its sovereign right, chooses to have a less market-organized society and system, that's very well. That's its decision to make. But market economies need to decide whether they can be interoperable as much with that Chinese economy as they would be if China had been more on a steady track to convergence with, you know, basic apolitical sort of norms of of what it means to be open and contestable and and sort of market oriented. So I think 
what I would call the decoupling debate has continued to broaden and get more serious right through the pandemic, even if people don't like, some people don't like calling it the decoupling debate. And even if it's more sort of a passive outcome that results from what China wants to be when it grows up, more than any kind of sort of Cold Warrior-ish idea about slamming the doors for geoeconomic reasons or something like that. Now, there are some important aspects of policymaking in the United States, uh, Japan, Europe, and Australia, elsewhere, that do kind of come closer to being about this sort of systemic competition decoupling that the, the security studies community more has in mind. And in particular, of course, it is the extraordinary dominance of China uh, our reliance on China as a production center for key critical inputs that were needed in the pandemic. The manner in which China made personal protective equipment, such as masks, surgical gowns, ventilators, and other things available, the manner in which vaccine diplomacy has been rolled out, has given rise to strategic questions. Make no mistake about it, in a lot of countries, uh, certainly in the United States, but um, it's really Japan that's leading in terms of putting money on the table to incent its own firms to diversify from uh, simply relying on China as a production center for key critical inputs that turned out to be essential to national welfare in the midst of in the midst of a pandemic. So there are an important set of things where it's not just a China phenomenon. It's sort of an over-dependence on globalization and international trade uh, debate um, that goes beyond just China. But of course, as the world's factory, uh, many of those discussions are going to come back to an evaluation of how dependent we might be on China for something that it turns out we want to maintain domestic capacity to produce for ourselves, even if it's not the cheapest way to meet that need. You discuss larger market orientations and how key countries are responding. Could you also share with us how businesses, including multinational companies, are viewing China now? Has the pandemic and China's response to it impacted their willingness to invest or engage in operations in China? This is one that is particularly hard to disentangle from the general trend pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, because multinational firms interested in China have been more and more concerned about where the Chinese model is going, how contestable the Chinese market is for them for some time going back prior to the crisis. While we look at, and you asked me about what numbers we look at at the, at the beginning, well, we look at annual value of foreign direct investment into China, and we see that it's holding up, and China's proud to report, that the numbers this year, you know, might come in even five or 10% larger than last year. When we look at the trend of global investment in China divided by the size of the Chinese economy, China has actually shrunk in that way. FDI is less controlled for the size of the Chinese economy today than it was 10 years ago, which is an extraordinary statement. This is as a country becomes middle income, supposed to have wealthier consumers. This should be the golden age of global investment in China, just as Chinese companies we know would love to be investing around the world. But that 
started to break down some years ago, 2016, 2017. And that breakdown had mostly to do with Communist Party concern about whether private individuals were taking money out of China beyond what the party wanted to see, uh, whether they were borrowing money in China in order to take it out, which could be construed as uh, almost illegal in some cases, right? And Beijing was concerned about balance of payments concerns if patterns continued. So we enter into the pandemic and two-way activity by multinational firms gets much, much lower in both directions. And we still see that pattern right through today, the second half of 2021. Those cross-border flows are still greatly reduced from pre-pandemic, pre-2016-17 levels. But it's complicated, whether that is about the pandemic or it's about the general expectation about how China's economy is going to be doing. If those concerns about the GDP growth rate are merited, and if China's only growing 2 or 3% in 2025, because they've chosen not to do these market policy reforms, companies are just not going to bend over backwards to deal with all the challenges of being abroad in China if it's just a much more slowly growing economy. There's one other issue which is particularly problematic for multinationals right now, and that is that China's strategy for trying to stop virus transmission this extremely locked down flow of people in and out of the country, 14 days, 10 to 14 day quarantines, of course, at the border for anybody coming in. So nobody can do a short term trip to China to evaluate a business opportunity to have a meeting if they have to stop for 14 days at a hotel that they have no control over where they're going to be even staying just to kind of come in and kick the tires on a potential business or investment. So it's making it very hard for multinationals to maintain Uh, business as usual. Add that to all those strategic concerns about diversifying from over-reliance on China as a supplier, and you've got a lot of questions being asked in boardrooms right now. So we've asked a lot of really difficult and complex questions on different aspects of China's economy. I'm wondering if you could help us put it all together and help us give a sense of the big picture of where China's economy stands today versus prior to the pandemic. Would you say that China's economy is stronger or weaker now than before? I know this may be a simplification, but we welcome any thoughts on your end on this. It is a big question, and it's a hard one to answer. Let me bravely try to employ a physics metaphor. In physics, you know, one looks at energy levels, and one talks about kinetic energy and potential energy. And kinetic energy If something's in motion, if it's moving, it has force, it has momentum, it can do work, it can do stuff. And there's potential energy, which is if you take a 100-pound weight and put it at the top of a tree, it has the potential to do a lot of work as it falls. China, pre-pandemic, had incredible potential energy because its economy is only half reformed. It's only half globalized. Per capita incomes are only at nine or $10,000 and ours are at 65. So if China gets policy right, no country in the world, given it's 1.4 billion people, has as much potential to generate economic opportunity, profit streams, fees, contributions to global solutions to climate change, solar panels, uh, you know, that can help be part of that solution. Incredible amount of potential. Chinese savers, 
have 98% of their life savings in one emerging market called China. If there was anything like normalization in Chinese investment portfolios, savings portfolios, pensions, it would mean trillions of dollars flowing into global capital markets. And likewise, we know that even to today, uh, at least half of the global investment community is still passionately hopeful that it will have the opportunity to deploy capital in China to benefit from that potential growth. The problem is that potential growth is not the same thing as kinetic growth, as I called it, right? And actual flows. And the actual flows, the stuff taking place right now that confer power, China's ability to make more loans in Belt and Road, the ability of Chinese consumers to attract firms from around the world, the ability of China's innovators and technologists to capitalize, finance, build out and compete using these new technology platform uh, entities they've created, all of those sources of power have been put on a leash or are stuck in the mud or for one reason or another, some of those reasons are geostrategic now too because of the manner in which China's used its power abroad in recent years. All of those things are much more questionable today than they were, well, in the case of the tech sector, even six months ago. In the case of all these things though, pre-pandemic, there was still expectation that these near-term sources of Chinese power and strength from the private economy were still the most important game in town. And now almost you know, every one of them has had big footnotes and question marks put on it by choice, by Beijing, by the leadership, by choice in some cases, Perhaps they see it as of necessity to maintain political control and preserve their authoritarian preferences as a government. But again, I guess it's not for us to second guess what Xi Jinping and the party consider to be necessary for purposes of political stability. But it's not for Beijing to suggest that it can have both political control and the most dynamic, efficient economic growth at the same time. They can't. There's going to be a, a cost to be paid. There's a trade-off there. And while the potential is still as great as ever, I think the near-term ability of China to apply economic power is diminished by the political and security choices that have been made. Thank you so much, Dan. That was a brilliant metaphor and a really great way to really paint the picture in a very clear way to folks who aren't following all the details of China's economy as you are on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you so much for joining us, and I very much appreciate your insights. Well, it was my pleasure. I hope to be back sometime.